Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, August 19th, 2013. During this week in history, in 1911, a dispatcher at the New York Times sent the first telegram around the world via commercial service. The message which said only this message sent around the world was relayed by 16 different operators before it made its way back to the original dispatcher 16 and a half minutes later. Dude, I'd call that progress. Hi Kickstarters, Edward here. I'd like to bring you with me on a vicarious virtual voyage west by sea and around the world. Michelle's online over there. This is it, and we are in Los Angeles. There you are, Michelle. How's it going? Oh, it's just been absolutely fantastic. Just love meeting people, just going to the different countries that you see the diversity of um, people and the way people live. India is, I think, one of the most impactful trips we had. We had a four-day overland to the Taj Mahal. We came in in Mumbai, which used to be called Bombay. Right. Just to see uh, <laughs> that they don't really have much trash collection. And it was um, amazingly filthy there. But just to see the fact that people are still trying to live a life. And unfortunately, parents, even though the Indian government offers children free education until they're 14, the parents feel they make more money begging for money than educating their children, which I think is pretty sad. Oh. So when very young children would come up to me and ask for money, I would, I would ask them, why were they not in school? They didn't know why they weren't in school, and it was pretty sad. You're starting to sound like an ambassador, a goodwill ambassador with that story. <laughs> Just tell me some countries, like an itinerary, like a few places you went, and the people and the places and the, the smells, the sights, you know. I need to live vicariously through West by Sea. Really, it has been an amazing journey. We started in Australia, and of course, westbysea.com is the site. And we wanted to go west because as you head west around the world, you roll your clock back, and you get those 25-hour days uh, every so often, which is very nice. But after that, we went north a bit from Sydney, Australia, to Brisbane. We right. cut over to Singapore and then into Malaysia. We had two ports in Malaysia. See the Kuala Lumpur Tower. Really, a, you know, amazing country there. I'd love to go back to Langkawi in Malaysia. Very laid back. A lot of construction, a lot going on there. Wow. And it was hot. Yeah. And it was rainy. And it was very humid over there. You know, a lot of really cool mangrove swamps. We saw the red eagles over there, the golden eagles. And uh, we saw some monkeys. They were doing their thing. We cut from there over to Mumbai, and we actually took an overland into the central part of India. We saw the Taj Mahal. We saw the Red Fort, which was just, it was an unexpected surprise, that Red Fort. It was just amazing, the architecture, the way they had it set up and stuff. We flew to Dubai to pick up the ship again, and then from Dubai, we cut down and around the Horn of Africa. Uh, We did not see any pirates, but we had our pirate countermeasures going in case of piracy. That was really interesting. Into Egypt for a tour over to Luxor and the Nile River. Cut the next day over to Jordan, and we were up into the lost city of Petra, which was, uh, you know, it's a World Heritage Site, and it's one of those, uh, you've got to see it sometime in your life. Just take the time and go over there. Of course, then Israel, Greece, Istanbul, Turkey, three ports in Italy, 
and we went to Spain and Portugal and Monte Carlo, up into Ireland, England, Scotland, France, to Amsterdam, Denmark, Norway, up in Oslo, up in nice. the fjord. We did the transatlantic, came down around through the Panama Canal, a couple ports in the Caribbean first, then the Panama Canal, Costa Rica, and now we're back in U.S. of A. in uh, Los Angeles. But we're not done yet. But, but hold up, but you did keep the all your Kickstarter backers and all that in the community. You did keep those guys abreast. You, you gave them pictures and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Every day on uh, that website there, uh, we're putting up whatever we can. Sometimes the satellite doesn't connect, but on the days that it does, then we're putting up pictures. We're putting up a write-up, a little caption, things that we saw, things that we heard or smelled, and people that we met, things we experienced. You know, it's been a vicarious journey for everyone following, but we've got some fantastic backers, really. I mean, I've got, like, the top five backers on Facebook. Every single day they're in there. Every day they're liking the page. They're liking the photo. It's been great to get the feedback from the community, you know, uh, the support that we have from everybody out there, Kickstarter world, and then, you know, the rest of the online world. It's just been the wind beneath our wings. It's been fantastic. Michelle, has anyone said that you've been inspiring them with everything that you do with the cancer and stuff? Yes, I've met a lot of people on the ship who I've shared my story with, and they have their own amazing stories. Yeah, it's been uh, really inspiring to me as well to be an inspiration to other people. (laughs) You mean you get inspired too? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Like I've said before, everybody has something that they're dealing with every day. It might be something similar to cancer. It might not be, but everybody has a story. Some are very inspiring to me as well that people have pulled through other types of cancer and have had incredible life-saving surgeries. And, you know, they're still trying to make the best of it like I am. And I think with myself having cancer also, a lot of people were always asking me, like, hey, you're going to run a marathon or something? when you're done with your treatment, and I've decided this is my marathon. Now, I'm never sure how to bring the cancer thing up, so has your health been okay? You know, because traveling can be very stressful. It's been better than I expected. I thought I'd be a lot more seasick than I was, so I've been doing real well with motion sickness. The hardest part I had was usually I could tolerate heat and humidity pretty well, but when we went to India, I just found that it was so hot. So that's the only real issue I had was humidity, which I usually never did. Now, it's just not a trip with you guys. You guys are never done. There's always some new aspect to your lives. I, I'm I'm thinking audio postcard, update the listeners, but then I turn around and is there a new Kickstarter or something in your life? Yeah, so what we realized was the Kickstarter community being uh, as amazing as they are. So we looked around and we said, coming up on the end of the trip, Almost time to get that book going, and we really would like the book to be very successful because uh, it's inspirational to a lot of people. One of the things when you write a book is you need to have that barcode on the back of the book. It's called the ISBN. Right. And when you look that up, to get an ISBN is not cheap. So we said, well, you know, we had our backers help pay for the website and pay for the gear that brings the pictures every day and, you know, the posts every day from being out of sea. But now when we get this book going, we kind of like to go pro. So in order to do that, we need a little bit of funds for those barcodes there for the ISBN. And maybe if it's more successful, we could actually get a publisher and an agent and everything and, um, you know, take the book uh, pro instead of just doing it self-published. It might actually go big time. So you have to think big. You have to dream big in this world. And so we decided we do phase two 
of the West by Sea project to help fund those barcodes and take it up a notch. So we've got that online, and it should be um, running on Kickstarter. I think it's September 17th. So that's a Tuesday, and we've got it set up so people can get through there in that last weekend and, you know, decide if they want to pre-order the book and, uh, you know, help with phase two of that funding. So for anyone out there who likes Kickstarter, who loves the project creators of Kickstarter, who likes travel and leisure and all that sort of stuff, and hard work, because it's a lot of hard work what they're doing, even though they said they're traveling in a world tour. Go to kickstarter.com, check out, I believe it's West by Sea uh, Part 2, Phase 2, what is it? Yes, uh, we're doing West by Sea, it's a treasure hunt that spans the globe. Michelle and Ed, thank you very much for giving us this audio postcard and coming back on the show. Very good. Thanks again for all your help. Talk to you later. We are the shore of his just like before. Hi everyone. My name is Chris Lewis Carter. At Camp Myth, these creatures come together to earn amazing merit badges based on... I really love mythology. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to kind of talk about it. I want to know what Camp Myth is about. I watched a video and, and that's what intrigued me. And I even like the design of... It's like you have some sort of, not jewelry now, but badges or something, merit badges. So growing up, like you, I was really into all types of mythology, but I was also a member of Cub Scouts for a lot of years growing up. The thing with, with Cub Scouts that always kind of intrigued me was that you'd always get these merit badges for right. if you do certain activities, like you could go bird watching or you'd look after your cat for a week and that type of thing. And they'd always reward you with these badges. And that was that was always the thing. So I just kind of said, you know, what if you combined the two and there was kind of like a Scouts program for the kids of mythological creatures? Yeah. So instead of like, you know, bird watching and, and finding a blue jay, they'd have to go out in the woods and spot a phoenix. Or, uh, you know, instead of taking care of your cat for a week, you know, you'd have to take care of a hydra. So Camp (laughs) Myth is this place where mythic kids from all over the world, they kind of come together and they learn about each other's cultures and they earn merit badges for, you know, completing these mythical challenges that kind of have to do with with things in their community, in their realm. And I started out talking about the merit badges, but your Camp Myth is really about a book series. That's the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So each book is actually uh, is actually based on a different merit badge. Growing up, I also loved like the uh, the old like Goosebumps books that would come out every month, and mm-hmm. uh, you know each each month it'd be like, oh, what's what's this month's theme kind of thing. So I kind of want a Camp Myth to have a similar feel, but every book the focus is a different merit badge that the main characters are trying to earn. So the first one was Phoenix watching, and uh, the new one with the the campaign that's running right now is Kraken fishing. Oh yeah, yeah, I love anything with the word Kraken in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for you to put something like this together, and you, you talk about your childhood, but what's your profession? Like, what's your day job? My day job is sales. So this is definitely an escape <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if anything, writing has kind of been my escape for years. I watched a video. Okay, I said that before, but I did watch it again. So, <laughs> But I had like a little, not a bone to pick with you, but... You talked about inclusion. So in this book versus the first book, I believe, you talked about mythological creatures with disabilities. Right. And you chose the aquatics. I want to be an aquatic. I didn't think that was a disability. I thought thought that was a plus to be an aquatic. You know, most mythic creatures are these, you know, land-walking creatures. So from their perspective, the aquatics who 
kind of can't necessarily do everything that the land walking creatures can do in a way that is kind of their disability of sorts. But at the same time, like you said, if you frame it in a different light, they shine in their element. They have this whole perspective and this whole range that the land walking creatures wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, that's definitely a, a part of and a big theme of this book, too, is kind of you know, meeting the kind of the aquatic people and kind of, you know, seeing how they all really have this greater part to play in the camp. And you had to pick somebody. So, you know, right. (laughs) Someone had to fall. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I mean, you could pick on the centaurs and just say like four legs, you know, how do they wear pants? It's crazy. Or it could have been the the ones who flew, you know, something like that, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All those flyers. In every society, you, you got to pick someone. So I understood that. It's just possible. Right. I was like, man, I wanted to be an aquatic. I was like, how can he, how can he do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are your backers saying? I always look to the backers because they're, they're those trusting souls. Yeah. <laughs> what are they saying, actually, second time around? Well, the feedback has been uh, has been great because uh, basically, I guess, to, to back up a little bit with the first campaign and and now with this one, kind of the big hook and the big, you know, trying to get that interactivity and get that community aspect built was that was kind of the big draw for the project was I said, you know, if for backers, you can design your own mythic creatures, they'll be illustrated and, and featured in the book. Some were featured in a bonus short story. Some were even put on the cover of this book. That's a pretty cool thing to, to have your likeness rendered. You know, I, I kind of let people run wild. I said, you know, go however deep you want to go with this, create a backstory, physical traits, personality. You know, I'll, I'll work with you directly and with my artist and we'll bring this vision to life if you want it based on yourself or a family member or we'll really, you know, take this character and, and bring it to life in this world. And, you know, with the backers, I, I definitely expected that to be kind of a, a neat hook that would get some people interested. But what I really didn't expect were just kind of the enthusiasm and how much of themselves people put into their characters. With the first book, there were 14 people from across four continents I was corresponding with and had their characters featured in the books. Oh, that's or in cool. the first book. And, you know, I had just the stories that came out of it. Could almost write another book just on them. You know, I had sisters who, who got a sister who had a character for a brother, a husband for his wife. Uh, I had a father who had a young daughter who was only six months old. I had another guy who was a really awesome guy, and for his design, he said, well, I want to make a centaur, and uh, the thing with this centaur is he has a brace on one of his back legs. His back leg is badly damaged, and he kind of needs to wear a brace, so with this centaur, he can't really run as fast as all the other centaurs, but where he really makes up for it is with his mind. He's always inventing things, and so, you know, he kind of contributes in this different way, and I said, wow, that's, that's a great idea. You know, if you want to send a picture of yourself, you know, I can make sure that the artist uses it in your likeness and he said sure absolutely so he sent the picture and when i i opened up the picture i found out that he was actually in a wheelchair oh gotcha gotcha you know which was just this this kind of an amazing moment of like wow you know he's really putting just this big piece of himself into this character you know i always go back to business and i don't mean to or maybe i do i'm stuck on it but it's just the whole thing of camp myth together the the name the the likeness the logo the it almost like a being like a field of dreams, you know, and, and then you <laughs> put this aspect into it where people can write themselves as a character in the book. It's like where myth meets reality. So it's it's totally cool, man. It's an incredible idea, man. If you build it, they will come for sure. It, yeah, it's definitely the mythic field of dreams. No, I really appreciate that. Now, for anyone out there who liked Chris's story, which is like a camp that 
almost anyone could see themselves part of, I think, because because it has the word myth in it. It talks about mythological creatures, and mythological creatures are totally cool. So if you kind of believe that, I'd say go to kickstarter.com and type in Camp Myth. It's, it's number two, but if you type in Camp Myth, it'll bring it up, period. And you can never go wrong when they use the word Kraken in a title. If you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll have some nice links for Chris. I'm definitely happy to talk to you about, man, about your book. And it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Greetings, brave adventurers, and welcome back to the realm. These vast lands have been threatened time and again by the forces of the undead, the savage dragonkin, the green-skinned hordes of orcs, and foul demons tainting the ground as they uh, Rick, you know now you and I have been through this before. I want to say welcome to the show again. It's good to have you back. Well, it's great to be back, thanks. Now, Griffin and Eagle. Eagle and Griffin Games. What's new? Well, we got a couple going on now. We're uh, delighted. Just exactly a week ago, I think. We started a Defenders of the Realm Minions Kickstarter project, and this is a supplement. This is a miniatures game, but it's a cooperative miniatures game. And I stress that because cooperative games have started to come into vogue now. People are interested in cooperative games. A couple of them did really well with winning the German Game of the Year award this past year. With cooperative games, I keep thinking video games, computer games. No, you can actually... This is one where you sit around the board, and in each case, you are a hero. Probably in real life, you're a hero, actually. But in this case, you're a hero, and one of about eight different roles that you can play. And your group of heroes, and it's played best with four or five players, uh, are trying to defend the realm. And the realm is under attack from minions, and there are Dark Lord generals that uh, have organized their minions, whether they're the black, which are the undead that are coming after you, or if they're orcs, or if they're demons, uh, they're coming after the city, and your job is, as a hero, is to keep, and as your group of heroes, to cooperate and keep those minions from taking over your capital city, which is Monarch City. Hold on a second. I'm trying to understand this uh, cooperative board game. So does that mean that you're not playing against each other, but you're playing against the game, like you and whomever are playing. Is that what the cooperative part means? That's exactly right. Yeah, the game has huh. an intelligence built into it so that you each take a turn as a hero in this case, and then the game takes a turn. And the game has a stack of cards that represents the game, and it does several things to try and thwart your keeping them away from the monarch city. And so the cards come up, and as they come up, the task gets tougher. They throw roadblocks in your way, they spread. And as they're spreading, you've got to go after them where they are and keep them out of the city. This is a game that's really captured a good-sized audience, up in the 20,000s-plus have been sold. And it's gaining in popularity, which which, uh, we obviously, after two years, were enjoying uh, the sort of renaissance of interest that's happening right now. Well, I'm looking at your Kickstarter page right now, and those are some pretty creepy pictures there. Some sort of Skeletor-looking <laughs> type of guy and a ogre-ish type of guy. But Oh, and you got like a winged 
demon type guy right there? This is your worst nightmare right here. Come to life in a board game. But you're with your friends, and it's your friends that are gathered around the board in the form of these other heroes. What's nice is the game is not an easy game. You just don't uh, say, well, we're going we're gonna to beat this thing, and we're going to manipulate it. The game plays very intelligently, and it's a far more difficult game to win, and therefore when you do win, it's pretty satisfying, and you do have to cooperate. You can't go at this thing, well, I'm going to do this, and one, you know, you've got to coordinate your activities, you've got to coordinate what you're doing in order to win this game. If you don't cooperate, the game's going to beat you. That's all there is to it. Hey everybody, I'm Matt Riddle. And I'm Ben Pinchback. We're the world-famous designers of lots of great titles, uh, such as Fleet, the commercial fishing strategic card So game. now, let's yeah, get down to business. Fleet, you know, What's that second game you're talking about? Because I hear that's doing really well, too. But it, it seems as though you're marketing it a little differently than all of the other games that I've seen you in the last six months or so. But this one is like the two project creators on the video. Uh, this is a game called Fleet. Right. that we uh, produced actually a year ago. And the two designers came, as many do. They had never published a game before. Uh, a couple engineers out of Michigan. And they came to us with a prototype. It was actually done on a, several decks of cards, just regular playing cards with hearts, diamonds, spades, and clubs. And they had just pasted their ideas onto this several decks of playing cards. And that's how we got the prototype. We worked with them for about six months, got an artist involved, and put the game out a year ago. And this was one of those stories where it went up on fleet to, I think, a goal of, I want to say, $6,000. And on the first day, it hit the 6000 Now that we Now, that's happened with other games, I guess, since then. That was the first time I knew that that kind of thing could happen. And, of course, it was very, very exciting. And we saw it eventually get up to all, just shy of $40,000. Yeah. And we were able to produce far more copies than we had initially thought. And as the ball kept rolling, people uh, ordered it in such numbers that when the ship came in, it was gone. And the designers were starting to think, my goodness, we can do an expansion to this. And so what we're doing right now is an expansion to it. And we're reissuing the base game so that people who weren't able to get that first print run are now able to get it. So right. that's sort of the backstory on how that particular thing evolved. So what we've got is an expansion to a very popular card game and making the original card game available as well. And this is about commercial fishing, of all things. Talk about going from one thing to another. Uh, we're going from orcs and uh, dragons to commercial fishing, to uh, tuna and cod and lobsters and shrimp and boat captains. That's almost like a weird topic for a game. Yeah. You wouldn't see that every other day. That's exactly right. And I think the guys, the engineers in Michigan, uh, I shouldn't mention their names, are Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback. Mm -hmm. And uh, they put together a mechanic for this game first. Now, there's always this debate in the game world about, well, do I think of the theme and then I make a game based on the theme? Or do I think of the mechanic? How's the game going to work? And then once I've got the mechanic developed, I then attach uh, a theme to it. And you'll get an interesting debate out of that because it's two very distinct schools of thought that exist in the world of games and game design. Right. But in this case, they thought of the mechanic first. 
They knew what they wanted to do and how that game was going to be played before they had any clue whatever about what the game was going to be about. It could have been about building cities. What are they, savants or something? <laughs> well, you'll find as, you, as your education in the games world continues to grow, you'll find that there are different philosophies of games designs, and this is one of them where they came up with the way the game was going to operate before they came up with a theme. And then one of their friends, and he watched the world's greatest catch or deadliest catch on TV one time. And he said, you know, why don't you base this thing on going out fishing? And one of the designers said, well, I hate fishing. (laughs) And the (laughs) friend said, it doesn't matter whether you like fishing or not, man. You know, it's a great way to theme this game. So they imagined a hitherto unexplored lake in the uh, far Arctic area in Canada. They named it Ridback Bay after their two last names. And they said this is now a place ripe with great fish, and we need to, to develop a game that has fleets that you put together and you use the card. Now, you'll like this, too, because I'm going to guarantee you this is a concept you haven't seen before. Okay, It's a card game. It's almost exclusively only cards. It has little... Uh, fish meeples that you go out and fish for, and those are little pieces of wood that look like fish. The cards used in this game get used as, first, the type of boat that they are. Secondly, a number of coins, so they get used, the card can be used as a boat, can be used as a certain number of coins. It has a certain cost to be brought in. It can be used as a captain. You turn it upside down, there's a captain on the card, and it can be used to captain that boat itself. So the cards themselves have three uses, and then you have licenses, license cards, which are a different type. And you must obtain one of those licenses first before you can put down the right type of boat and before you can pay for the launch, before you can put a captain in it, you have to have the right uh, license. So the cards are doing three different functions. They aren't limited to what one thing. They've got three different functions you can use them for. That's cool, man. I mean, for anyone interested in checking out Defenders of the Realm or Arctic Fleet Bounty, go to kickstarter.com or check out djgrandpa.com where we'll provide links. Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks a lot, DJ Grandpa. You say a one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, y'all, let's rock this. Hi, my name is Michael Holman. I'm a hip-hop pioneer. And I'm really proud of the role I played in bringing hip-hop to the world. In New York, in 1981, I made the first hip-hop film called Catch a Beat. Congratulations with your success on Kickstarter of Graffiti Rock. And you spoke about being a hip-hop pioneer from way back when, which is redundant since you said pioneer. But I still like putting the way back when in there. Michael, I wanted to say congratulations for... Thank you. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I didn't know about your TV show, actually. So it was just good to find out about that. Yeah, I mean, it was the first hip-hop TV show ever. And that was really the beginning. You know, after having already brought artists downtown, after having put things historically in publication, historically on the stage, you know, I really wanted to keep pushing that envelope. And so TV was the next frontier. Now! Time for all the people all over the world to see rappers, breaking, DJ stars, rocking, shaking and breaking. 
Let's see how much of my history do I have wrong. History according to Michael. Okay, there's always a fight between who started hip hop, Bronx or Brooklyn. What's your opinion? Well, you know, hip hop culture, as we understand it in the classic sense of the early 80s, being, you know, graffiti, DJing, breakdancing, rapping, turntablism, you have to give that to the Bronx because it was in the Bronx that all these elements coalesced into a movement. It was the Bronx that us artists, you know, downtown art scenesters and hipsters from the East Village, it was the Bronx that we went up to mine and to find this talent and to bring it downtown to present it to the rest of the world. You can't really compare the Bronx and Brooklyn. Brooklyn did not have a comprehensive DNA in terms of hip hop and all of its elements. Brooklyn didn't, but the Bronx does and did. Okay, I understand it. All right, no, so, okay. so, so, you know, so it's kind of like a nuanced debate. No, I got you. I, I mean, I always give it to the Bronx, but I just had to bring that up. And by the way, what? if you really start to pull on that thread in terms of who was first, then you start getting into was even New York first. Then it becomes an issue of like, you know, did James Brown really, uh, was he really the, the creator of what we understand today as being, you know, hip hop music? I mean, you start pulling on that thread, your whole sweater is going to come undone. I mean, I love James Brown and he's a godfather and all of that, but I don't give him give it to him for for hip hop. My story is before I heard the first rap record, which you know I still say is the Sugar Hill Gang's rapper's delight, and I know hip hop and rap music started before then. The culture. I'm just saying, before I heard Rapper's Delight, every record that my family put on and people that I was around, they didn't affect me. They were all dancing, moving around. It was Al Green, it was Curtis Mayfield, it was all these records. But until I heard Rapper's Delight, until I heard Curtis Blow and Grandmaster Flash and all of that, I didn't feel that there was anybody who spoke just like I did, who thought just like I did, who possibly dressed just like I wanted to dress. And that's the whole Eminem kind of scenario when he says, you know, there's like, there's like six million white dudes who look just like me, act just like me, sound just like me. And that's what I felt about rap music when I heard the first record. There was no, I mean, I love funk music and all that, Parliament, James Brown, I still do. But I'm just saying, until I heard the first rap record, I felt alone. I did not feel, though, that there were people who thought just like I did. That's an interesting way to look at it. I said a hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, the hip hip hop, you don't stop the rocket to the bang, man, boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, and it might be a generational thing too, you know. It I mean? could be. I mean, I'm 58 years old, and I know, and I witnessed, I saw how hip hop, you know, through the hands of Bambada, Cool Herc, and people like that. Without James Brown, it wouldn't have happened. I know we all stand on each other, but I'm just saying, I heard James Brown. I love James. I, I lived James, but I was a child. But I'm just saying, as as a kid coming up, I'm 48. But I'm just saying, being DJ Grandpa and all, until I heard rap records. It was totally different. And I give it to James Brown because he was about entrepreneurialism and, and putting his own money out there. And hip hoppers were always about that. And hip hoppers are never to be ignored. And that's why they're so flamboyant. And James Brown was the same. But that's why he was the most, the most sampled. 
And don't forget, he called himself Brother Rap before there was disco. I probably make a mistake when I talk to you. You might correct me. I might. I used to say that there would be no Run DMC without Kumo D, L.A. Sunshine, and the Treacherous Three. But special then, K. yeah, it's Special K. But then you go right ahead and you have both of them on the same show. <laughs> so that may refute my whole public statement for the last 20 years or so. You see what I'm saying? No, but you're right. I mean, you know, Run DMC stands on the treacherous three shoulders, no doubt. I mean, you you talk about Jazzy J. Jazzy J and um, what's his face? TLA Rock, the first quote-unquote official record released by Def Jam. I mean, you were there before that. I was in the studio when they were doing that, See? funny enough. From the beginning, hip-hop was like an explosion. It's, it's nothing like it is now commercially, but I'm just saying there was such a groundswell. Cats just starting crews and getting their own DJ equipment and, and MCing and going back and forth. You know, DJ Starchild, all these people. And I'm just saying, if you were part of that, I mean, I owe a lot to you, man. I mean, just seeing the Crash crew, cats like that with high-powered rap. And I love the Treacherous Three at the party, Body Body Rock. I mean, all those joints. But I'm saying you were there first. I was a kid. I wasn't a physical participant like that. I was like uh, someone watching from the balcony or something, you know? The people who populated the hip-hop throwdowns, the park jams, the people that we really owe a great debt of gratitude to in the Bronx were the junior high and middle school kids. They were the ones who would go to these parties. They were the ones who couldn't afford to go downtown, couldn't afford to take a date downtown, who didn't have hard shoes to get into the disco, only had sneakers, didn't have any money. They were the kids who came to Bambada's throwdowns. They were the kids who came to Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash's throwdowns in the park. They were the ones. So when you look at who the vanguard was of hip hop in the mid to late 70s, it was the younger generation, the ones who couldn't get into the clubs, whose only alternative was Bambata's jams and Cool Herc's jam. And Kaz and Cold Crush Brothers, you know, Grandmaster Kaz would have throwdowns and would have park jams and have a sound system that he would battle with Bambata and whatnot. I'm happy to hear you say that because it's like you're preaching to the choir. It's like all the stuff that, that would have I, been your age, really. It was all the stuff I believed to be true. You know, I mean, it's like all the stuff that I that I thought I witnessed, you kind of co-signed. It was just so wild to see hip-hop, man, because it was just like, man, 81, 82, 83, it was still all this. I mean, I ain't got no, no problems with the Gap Band because I love Gap Band 4. The Gap Band 4 was killing, and I got no problems with Cameo and all of that. But they were all trying to do the whole Lionel Richie thing, and they were all trying to do the pop thing, and that's what allowed rap music. Yeah, that's what allowed. Uh, who's, who's, I was thinking of. Um, this ring means I'll always be true. What's that song? What's this that band? Shalimar. Oh, I love Shalimar. those cats. I, said, I mixed up Shabadoo with Shalimar. No, I love Shalimar, but I see what you're saying. And they were they were all trying to be Atlantic Star and all of that, and they were reaching right. For pop and that was dollars. cool music, but that's what young people who could go out on a date were interested in going to see in New York, not some park jam. That's the biggest mistake they made when they gave up on the funk and they started going for pop music rap music sampled to death out of James Brown 
and they knocked them all off their socks, man. They knocked them all out That's the box. That's an interesting way to look at it. I hadn't thought of that. When they did that, it was wide open. You could not stop hip-hop. Like I'm saying, all of them wanted to be Lionel Richie, Shalimar, like he said, Atlantic Star, all of that. The Whispers, all of that. This is fascinating to say this because because what we're talking about right now, I'd never really thought of before, but you're absolutely right. What had happened was hip-hop music, and I'm not talking about rap, I'm talking about hip-hop music. Hip-hop is different than rap. And that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Hip-hop music was really, you know, what you're basically kind of intonating and what we're kind of talking about here is kind of fascinating is that funk and soul and disco yeah. had not had its last words yet. That's true. When everybody was going for the Atlantic Star, funk and soul and disco fits in there, believe it or not, hadn't finished what they wanted to say. Yeah. And even though everyone's running to see what the latest, you know, release was in the record labels and wanted to be slaves to that whole sensibility and being down with whatever the latest thing that was coming out of LA or whatever, in the Bronx, you had people like Bambada say, no, 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 no. We're not finished with James Brown yet. We haven't wrung every last drip and ounce of soul out of our love for James Brown and our love for, you know, all these different artists. Jim Cast a bunch, and, you know, I mean, on and on and on. And so they were like, go ahead and be into, you know, like you said, Lionel Richie and Gap Band and, I mean, some great artists, great artists. You and I are not saying they're not great. We're just saying... They made the wrong musical moves. And there was a lot of good good songs coming yeah. out of that movement, but you know, the door hadn't closed on funk and soul. And that is what kicked open the door for hip hop. One day hip hop culture as we knew it in the early eighties will return. You think so? Come on, man. Don't play, don't play. Dude, it was a pleasure talking to you and, and thanks for coming on the show. I wish you the best. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate being on your show. The beat beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Cause it's the beat, the beat, the beat, beat, y'all. Ever since we were kids, we had dreams about our toys coming to life, walking around, driving their cars, working their jobs. Well now, we make those dreams a reality. Monotogo Studios is dedicated to bringing toys to life in incredible stop motion films that make you laugh, cry, and thoroughly enjoy yourself, engaging the child inside. How do we pronounce the name of your studio? That's Monotogo. Yeah, some people have asked us, is it money to go? And we're like, no, 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 it's Monotogo. The name came from my, my nickname is Togo, that's right. my name Greg translated into Hobbit, and my sister's name is Monica, so Monotogo, it's a, kind of a combination of her name and my nickname. So you and your sister founded your studio in 2009? That's exactly right. We are a partnership, so. Now how do you pronounce the name of your film? Bound. Bound. I thought yep. so, but I, I just, I figured I had to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> you were right on this one, so you get some points. I watched the trailer on Kickstarter, and it looks incredibly magical, and that's kind of cool, and I guess that's the effect and all you're going for. So I guess there, there's been a million films where 
toys kind of come to life. What makes yours special? This film has really nothing to do with toys coming to life in the more traditional sense of a movie like Toy Story or The Magic Cupboard. Right. The reason we went that direction in the trailer was we were trying to kind of inspire people with the idea of what could happen if toys came to life. But the movie's not actually about that. It just takes place in a brick-built world, if you will, with Lego characters, with brick houses, brick animals. So no people in the world? It's just, I mean, the people are the Lego characters? Yes, that's correct. It's just, you won't see any live footage in the actual final project. Everything is stop-motion animation, and it's a world based around kind of that whole Lego culture. There's not any, not any live action in it. I feel misled now by the trailer with the kid in it and the people. <laughs> well, I apologize if that's misleading. Your trailer on Kickstarter is extremely important to hook people into a project, but I do go on to explain in that little video piece that the actual project we're making is a Lego stop-motion film, otherwise known as a brick film. It's not actually a live-action film incorporating toys coming to life. Well, what is the story then? It's really about two siblings, uh, Nathan, who's 16, Abigail, who's 12, and their elderly guardian, Micah, sometime in his mid to late 60s. The children, their older half-brother, Zathan, has been captured by a rogue soldier known by the name of Guaramoth, who's assembling a rogue army to bring dark vengeance down upon the medieval world. Uh, when Zathan is captured in the service of the king, it falls upon his two younger half-siblings and their guardian to trape across the medieval wilderness in an epic adventure to attempt to rescue him and also try to share the gospel with him because he's a non-believer. Now, isn't this going to cost you a fortune in Legos to depict all of this? Yeah, it basically has. This is going to be a lot of money to go. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I got what you done there. <laughs> yeah. My sister and I have been investing a lot of our own savings into this project, and right now we have about 300 pounds in Legos. I saw in the film that you had an admittance that I thought that was pretty funny when you said you, you did a film earlier and it, and it kind of sucked, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, try, we try to be honest, and we wanted to let people know that it's not our first project. We've been doing this for a long time. And we've been learning. We're getting better. People can kind of see our progression there from what we were doing to where we are. And uh, also to give a little bit of hope to other people who are interested in filmmaking that you know, never despise small beginnings because you have no idea where one day they might lead. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a passage too, but it does sound very much so true. Now, you said stop motion animation mm -hmm. again. So is this going to be like a 10-minute film, like a, f a film short because it takes so long to develop and shoot stop frame? No, this will be 45 minutes to an hour. Wow, that's going to take like 10 years. Well, that's why we've already been on for four and a half. But to be oh, fair, right. we're over 75% of the way animated already. Okay, now how is your sister? Is she any good at all this stuff? What does she do? Don't tell anybody because it's kind of a secret. But basically, I'm pretty sure my sister is Superwoman. Oh. Not going to lie. She is phenomenal. I do not know another person wow. who has such a balance of right-brained abilities and left-brained abilities. She can work math and do logic with the best of them. And as an artist, she is exceptional. Wow. 
frankly, I have ideas, but without my sister, some of these ideas just couldn't happen. I, I do not know another person. Yeah. I don't know another person who could replace her. Wow. Well, that is a stunning endorsement. And, um, man, well, what's her name? Monica, right? Her name is Monica, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Monica. yeah, Monica. Okay, and Greg, and yeah. How do you pronounce the Money to Go Studios? <laughs> Mont- Monotogo. Monotogo. A little bit of Monica, a little bit of Togo. Right, Monotogo. I got you. Okay. Yeah, I like the vibe, man. That That's way cool, man. And I wish you guys the best in your dreams, man. And thank you for telling me about the brick and mortar film. You're Not welcome. brick and mortar, right. but, but brick man. But it's, it's brick and mortar just sounds so cool. But, but the brick, brick man film that you guys are doing. No, Brick Film, not Brick Man Film. And anyway, by the time yeah. I edit all of this, it'll all work out just fine. Perfect. See, that's perfect. You got yeah. it, man. <laughs> yeah, no problem, man. And, and good luck to you and, and your sister. Thanks so much, Gigi, Grandpa. When we first started developing Wikimedia, we wanted to create a unique platforming experience, both combat and puzzle elements. Being part of the console generation, we grew up with a variety of games, from Sonic to Metal Gear. This allowed us to view both good and bad design with a critical lens. Steven, uh, For example, what's your position at uh, Martian Media? Well, uh, all four of us really go and uh, add a good amount to the design. There's no one of us that would like really stand out and be the designer. So I'll just get that out of the way now and say that I'm a designer. And yours is the first time I've ever accepted a game? like that from a company of you know i've gotten other offers of you know you want a link to our game and i'd be like nah i don't really care (laughs) i mean like you know i just checked the video out and we talk about the game but yours was like what's that like so i accepted it and i played it yesterday i had my daughter play and she was like oh this is a cool game and i i really like the graphics the graphics were just incredible man and that is totally flattering man thank you so much how do people live like that <laughs> you know it's like people actually get links to just stuff that nobody has like, okay well let's try it out <laughs> i'll bet you cracking me up so i was trying to live like vicariously through you by accepting the link and you know downloading it playing the game and waking amy and i really thought the concept was cool you know i mean it's sad that she's in a coma and all of that you know i don't mean to make light of that in case there are any politically correct people listening and stuff like that but i thought it was cool that no not cool that she was in a coma but i mean the, the story was intriguing you know story rich story rich yeah I'm the kind of person who skips through every cutscene, so like, even though I'm making a game with cutscenes like this, I want to make sure that for the people out there like me, the gameplay doesn't require it, you know what I mean? It's not necessary, but we we definitely want to boost the gameplay experience by all means with the cutscenes. When I saw that you could cut past what you call the cutscenes, I was like, man, I wish I knew that, because I, I would have just skipped those, man. I would have just skipped those and went <laughs> yeah, straight man, to you're the... just like me. Yeah! <laughs> Sometimes I get all these long letters, and I'm like... I was like, where's the link? Where's the link? You know, I read a couple words, DJ Grandpa, da 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 da. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. Where's the link? Where's the link? And yeah, I, I'm spoiled, man. I'm sorry about that, man. We try not to beat around the bush here at Martian Media. Wow, man. I see, that's another reason I like you guys, man. You get straight to the point. All right, well, tell us about this game, man. Let's get to the point, man. Let's not waste any more time, man. Sell, sell, sell. Come on. <laughs> It's a 2.5D 
puzzle combat platformer. So that means, I mean, you can move around mostly for the most part in the X and Y dimensions. You can go left, right, up, and down. Right. And there are points in the game that kind of change it up. Like a lot of the PlayStation 1 greats did, like uh, Crash Bandicoot, Pandemonium, stuff like that. I guess I'll talk about the combat first and then the puzzling. Uh, we took a lot of combat elements from the Super Smash Brothers series, being like huge Super Smash Brothers fans. Like we go to tournaments and stuff. Oh, okay. So like a lot of the combat is based around that. You got like attacks that are different in the air, different on the ground, different if you're running, stuff like that. And uh, you can combo depending on your own, you know, free will. Like you have you have the choice. You can. You can combo them differently depending on how you like, and that's something we really like here, um, kind of segue into the puzzling, is uh, we really like when players can figure out a way to get around a problem in several different ways, like however they want to. Right. We hate when there's just a linear story, if you will, in a, in a game where it's like, you have to play it the way the developers intended. One strict, figure this specific problem out this specific way and you're done. So that's what we try to avoid here. You'll find that a lot of the fights, a lot of the combat, has a puzzle element to it. You know, you can sneak around and maybe try to figure out a different way to get through your problem other than just uh, bashing the enemies. But if you're like me, you know, ADD, I'm just in there for the battles. I'll just go in and uh, battle them and get it over with. That's basically the game in a nutshell. I like the night background and and the buildings off in the background and objects near, far, near, far. I guess that's probably with every game, but. I just thought it was kind of cinematic like that, and, and I kind of appreciated that, you know. Yeah, we love the perspective. I mean, uh, Unity 3D, the engine we use, has been like an amazing tool for that. Just to be able to optimize so well that you can actually have these things going on in the background and then uh, still be able to run the game efficiently. I have a question. Not knowing anything about the gaming world and, you know, pretending and stuff like that. Like you said, the Unity game engine. Are there mm-hmm. just so many game engines, like maybe open source, you know, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but let's say maybe open source on the net that it just mm-hmm. makes or helps people, gives them a leg up to produce games faster or for less money than they would have been able to in the past? For sure. I mean, we got started on a program called Stencilworks. Right. They make it as simple as possible. You're literally coding by dragging blocks of logical statements like they're like certain colors and you like drag them with your mouse and stuff so uh that that got us started but it was really easy to produce a decent quality game and that's what got us hooked if you will and then we kind of hopped over to unity uh which is basically like a 3d version of stencil works where uh you know they have a lot of tools for new developers particularly one that comes to mind is the rigged body where you know you can have animated physics that work basically just near like real life physics and then you can take that package of physics and then mess around with them however you want whereas you know now that we've gotten a little bit better we code our own physics but it was definitely a great way to transition into the period where you're developing your own your own right. physics and stuff like that the, the game engine's great it's amazing but that's not even as great as the community has been um, the unity community like i don't right. know shout out to them you know they've been the greatest help well, how's it going on Kickstarter? I mean, is this is this your first Kickstarter? This is our first Kickstarter, yeah. The community's been great. Like we've we've gotten like a bunch of likes on Facebook and a bunch of backers that we don't even know who they are, um, and it's been incredible. We got staff picked on Kickstarter, but we're noticing that the most successful Kickstarters had you know thousands of people looking at them before they launched it. So if anything, we've learned from that. But um, we're very hopeful that we're going to reach our goal. If you look at the the trends on like Kick Track and like websites like that, 
it looks like we're going to reach our goal and we're very uh, happy and thankful for that. But um, something we like to say is that like, you know, this game can't be made without backers. This game can't be made without supporters and fans. So uh, we just kind of like, like to say, um, please support, <laughs> donate us, donate to us if you can, uh, because if we don't reach our goal, there is a good chance that we won't be able to make this game. And most people that see it like it, and we're just looking to spread the word. You know, DJ Grandpa, he really likes to play games. And like I said, a lot of times I don't get time to go through all of them like I did this one. But I actually did play Waking Amy. And I thought it was cool, man. And so I would advise you, if you get a chance, go to kickstarter.com and type in Waking Amy. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we will provide the freshest links. And this guy here, this guy here from Martian Media, man, I don't know what he's doing, man. But he seems to have all this coding and all this stuff down. He's talking about communities that I don't know nothing about. He's talking about <laughs> engines that help build stuff that I, I still will never know about. <laughs> you know, Blogger is complicated enough for me. Well, you're definitely really good at it, man. We <laughs> love your show. Thanks, man. And, and Steven, we were happy to have you. And whomever was in the background prodding you on the show. <laughs> it was really fun, man. It was <laughs> this is this is hilarious. I love it. Scared you, didn't I? Hi, my name is Ryan. I live here in Citrus Heights, and I know it doesn't look like much right now, but in the Halloween season, this thing is decorated up for the scariest house in the whole neighborhood. Hello, Ryan. Yeah, hey, how you doing? Pretty good, DJ Grandpa here. Hey man, it's good to talk to you. I hear you got the creepiest house in the neighborhood. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been known for. Hey, that mask is scaring me, man. That's why I had to call you. I had to face my fears. I'm glad then, because if it's scaring you, that means I'm doing it right. Oh yeah, it creeped me out, man. You said it's a bad end, though. Guardian of the Abyss. Yes, that's correct. How long have you been working on this crazy idea? You know, to be honest with you, I started sculpting that mask about three years ago. It came out of, um, you know, my Halloween background. Right. And uh, we were watching the TV show Face Off one night, and I was really interested in how they do the special effects and stuff. And I told my wife, I said, I'd like to give that a try. And so we've got a mannequin head, and we got some of the clay. And I actually just set out to do kind of a practice just to get a feel for how to work the clay. And right. having never sculpted anything in my life, and it evolved into this. You have like 35 backers, but you have like all your money, more than your money. Yeah, I tell you, I, I feel so good. I mean, this has been just a godsend for me. Three years, like I said, I'd get it down every now and then. I'd work on it a little bit. I'd put it away for a few weeks. And then when I got kind of bored, I'd bring it back down. And I am an artistic person. And as an artist, I'm my own biggest critic. So I'm always scared. And, oh. and it's kind of hard to reach that final stage, you know. And, but now I've got, you know, my family and my backers and everyone who's supporting me, man. It's just giving me a shot of energy. And it feels so good. I know, and you've never done anything like this before, and it's just way complicated, man. I wouldn't want to see this in an alley. Yeah, I tell you, and I've had a, I've had a lot of input from various forums that I belong to about the the sculpting, and I've had a lot of people more experienced than me that are kind of saying that it's a complicated piece to mold, and and w with a background of doing Halloween props, I've done some molding before, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, but 
I'm halfway through the molding process right now, and I've got to admit, it's really scary, and I'm actually kind of wishing I hadn't done something so complicated because it's definitely got its set of challenges. Could you give us a description for those who can't see it right now? The inspiration just kind of came because I, I wanted to create my first work, and I just wanted to create something that was kind of demonic-looking. So I kind of envisioned in my head what a demon might look like. And I just started to put it together, and I wanted something that kind of had a human resemblance. So it kind of has, you know, the human eyes and a single mouth and all that kind of recognizable features that a regular human would have. But then I decided to kind of tweak it a little bit, and I kind of gave it a, a vampire bat-like nose, and then I gave it the large fangs for the, the scary teeth and the, the fine cheekbones. And then when I got to that point, I started looking at it going, well, what else does this thing need? So... I decided this guy needs a lot of horns, not just typical two horns, but I put them all along the cheekbone and all along the brow, and then uh, I actually went over the top of his head with ram's horns, considering that that's kind of a traditional look, right. and uh, I just kept on going. And uh, every time I came up with a new idea, it would just be, like you said earlier, if I were walking down a dark alley and something jumped out, what would it really take to scare me? And that's kind of what it ended up coming to. All right, now it has these big gaping teeth, and it almost looks like it has some sort of giant bat ears or something. And, yeah, he said about the ram's horns, and it has all these gesticular points coming out from his face, and it has to draw it in, like, real tense skin ripples going up around the neck. It's way creepy, man. I wouldn't want to touch it. I wouldn't want to touch it. Even if it was in a cage, I, I, nah, I'd have to look the other way, man. It'd be something wrong. It'd be something wrong to have something like that alive and, and kind of, like, looking at you, so... I keep it on a shelf in my bedroom uh, when I'm not working on it. And we've had friends and family members come over, and they want to see it. When they see it in there, they ask my wife and I, how can you guys possibly sleep with that thing sitting on a shelf looking at you? <laughs> no, nah, I wouldn't do that, man. I, I kind of have to make you take that, you know, take that out of the room or something. <laughs> now, what types of people are you attracting on Kickstarter that might leave a comment or two or something like that? or? funniest thing is is that I, I basically offered like two really good rewards and for a fifty dollar uh, contribution you get a copy a wearable copy of the mask and for seventy five dollars you get the exact same mask but it's been signed and numbered by me a limited edition of 20 right and I just thought it was really weird that the limited edition ones have almost completely sold out and it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm a nobody but people are willing to donate that extra twenty five dollars just to have my autograph on it, and it really gives me some confidence to say, that's cool, you know, there's other people out there that believe that maybe one day I might actually be someone in the industry, and the value of those masks will go up, and that right there is a huge shot of encouragement for me. Now, do you really want to be someone in the industry like that, you know, like a, one of those mask type of people? You know, I really, really love Halloween. Been doing the haunted houses in my backyard for years. We never charge admission. It's open to everyone. We caution people that it's not really aimed at children because they get all the other houses in the neighborhood to just trick or treat at. This has come more for the adults. And I really, really have enjoyed sculpting this mask. I can't wait to get it done so I can start on my next one. I got a lot of really great ideas for what I want to do next. I would love to just be able to start a business. I'd like to get some other artists together who are kind of doing what I am out of their garages and put a website together where we could all sell our masks and, you know, just kind of do that. 
I would definitely right. not be opposed to some independent filmmaker coming up to me and saying, we'd love for you to create masks or, or creature effects for a movie we're doing. I, would, I mean, it's been so much fun doing this, and now to see it actually kind of coming to fruition and getting somewhere and knowing that this could get me the seed money I need to kind of launch into the next direction, it really is great. Go to kickstarter.com and type in Abaddon, Guardian of Abyss. Uh, Halloween mask, and I know you don't know how to spell it because I wouldn't know how to spell it, but Abaddon, A-B-A-D-D-O-N, and maybe you do know how to spell it, so that was useless, but go there anyway, and if you can't find it there and you're listening to the podcast, go to djgrandpa.com, and we'll have links to Ryan and his whole family's business, and hopefully it'll be going well and thriving, so when you click on the links, you'll see this whole big, beautiful website, and you know, he's already reached minimum funding, but he's still accepting more money and more mask offers. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you very much, DJ Grandpa. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's trip. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing, and to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rufus.